All right, well, we're in pillars. And if you remember, we have four. We started with a definition and we have four pillars. So our four pillars are the Bible's a big story. So we don't read the Bible as a collection of parts. We read the Bible's one big story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you have to know where you are in the story because the story builds on itself. It's organic. And so if many of you work in a business or in you know, a bank or something, you talk about organic growth. Well, the Bible grows organically. And so you've got to understand what's going on in Genesis, and that takes root in Exodus, and you get through to Pentateuch, and it's growing, and you get through Kings and Chronicles, you get through to Prophets, New Testament, it's all growing. So you have to kind of know what goes before, so that by, by the time you get to the end, you get this enormous tree, this big vine that is producing the Scripture and all that God wants us to know, but you can kind of trace the roots back and understand a lot of it from the beginning. So we read the Bible as a big story. Secondly, the Bible is Jesus' story. So the Bible's technically not a history book. It's not a counseling book. It's not a psychology book, a sociology book. The Bible is Jesus' book. The Bible is about God and about Jesus. It's not primarily about us. In fact, we mentioned this a few times as we were uh, working through passages, and you may hear references in sermons to this point. If we read the Bible as all about us, then we're going to read the Bible as rules and regulations and heroes and examples, and then we need to live out those things. But if you read the Bible primarily as about God and what he's done for us, then we realize that we read our lives into his story rather than try to screw up and work out all these things in our lives. It's not self-help. It's the help that God delivers through Jesus. And then thirdly, we talked about our absolutes, convictions, preferences, and the label we give that is a prioritized theology. What the Bible says is true, but all that the Bible says is not equally important. And so the most important things uh, we need to have absolute unity on. There are other things that God could have made clear, but he didn't. You know, what is the right eschatological view, right? That eschatology, that exit, right? The end stuff. Well, God could have made it clear when Jesus is coming back. How is he coming back? He's coming back before tribulation, after, before the millennium, and during. Well, he didn't make that clear. So that must not be as important as the things that he made crystal clear. And so we need to make sure we're emphasizing the absolutes. I had an old seminary prof. He was always fond of saying, when you read the Bible, read it curiously. Ask lots of questions to what God's saying and what the passage is about. But recognize The Bible doesn't answer all the questions you may be asking. Make sure you ask the questions the Bible answers. They must be the most important questions. And so the questions that God answers in the Scripture in a crystal clear way, they must be the main questions because they're the things he's given us clarity on. That's what we mean by absolutes. Convictions, right, human constructs that then we need to live out. Uh, but other people are going to construct things in a slightly different way. We give space to them. We give liberty. And then as far as preferences go, things you like, things you prefer, what makes you comfortable, we sacrifice our preferences and interests so that other people can have theirs met. So that's what we mean by prioritized theology. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at gospel transformation. And I have to tell you, I debated you know, long and hard before we started this, what order to put them in. And uh, I was really tempted to put this last section on transformation and change, you know, the fruit world stuff, to put it first. Because you need to understand how human beings work. And then when we're doing the other things, it kind of fits in. But I decided, yeah, it, 
it would be good if we had some of the other data before we got to understanding human beings. Um, but it, this is kind of like, you know, an introductory course. And if, you, if you've ever taught anything or maybe just led a seminar, here's what you quickly discover. Everything you're teaching should be first. And everything should be last. Because everything needs to come out of the gate as important and valuable. And everything affects everything. So everything should come at the end. So here's the order we did. You may not like it. If we ever do it again, maybe we'll mix it up. I, you can ask a question or share your input on that as we go. So what, what we've been talking about is transformation, how that happens. And I said not to frighten anybody. We've only got like half the model. But you pretty much understand 95% of the model, even though you have half of it. You think, and you used to teach math? I'll show you what I mean in a minute. All right, biblical investigation. If you remember, these are some passages that, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago just to kind of illustrate that. But the point was, we're putting together world, fruit, and heart. And what we're saying is, God made us in such a way that we interact with our world, our environment, people, things that affect us. All of that's in our world. So we're impacted. We're impacted, you know, kind of on the inside. We're impacted on the outside. We're impacted in lots of different ways. All those impacts, all those things that affect us would be in our world, our situation, our environment, our context. The second element is fruit. And I've said a couple of times, uh, the words you need to write down, fruit comes in three varieties. Thoughts, feelings, and actions. That's the stuff we produce. We make that. It comes out of us. That, that's why the Bible likes that agrarian metaphor, that fruit is the stuff we make. And lastly, heart. Um, if you like root better to keep the, um, to keep the metaphor consistent, um, heart is value, love, priority, identity, all the stuff actually under the fruit. So we said the Bible clearly te teaches us that world does not produce fruit. World can influence fruit production, but world does not produce fruit. Heart produces fruit. It's what's in your heart that brings about the wellspring of life, the, the um, writer of Proverbs says, right? It's what's in your heart that produces all of that. Now, there is a connection because what, what we do we take things in our world and we promote them to idols. We promote them to priorities, to loves, values in our heart. So we often take good gifts and we make them our gods. That's the process that the Bible calls idolatry. Now, the physical idols come from taking those idols on the inside and making them on the outside. And we may not do a whole lot of that in at least North America these days, but I do know this, the human heart keeps fashioning idols. And whether you make them with your hands or not, we are bowing to something. We are prioritizing something. We're loving something over other things. We are we're putting this over that. We put price tags on things and they show the relative value from this to that. So some of the examples you came up with and they were great. And I hope that even with our three little windows, I hope you're beginning to read the Bible with this transparency over them. And I collected your papers. I have them upstairs in my office. You were all beginning to do that. And I can guarantee you, if you keep doing that, you're going to read the Bible differently, right? So here are the um, passages, people, whatever you discussed in your groups. First of all, Jonah. Jonah is a great example. I usually chuckle when I read Jonah because Jonah is the only book of the Bible 
where the only person in the book, the only thing in the book that continually doesn't do what God wants is the preacher. Everybody else, everything else in the book does exactly what God wants. And so the wind obeys God, right? The fish obeys God. The pagan sailors obey God. The plant obeys God. The worm obeys God. The Ninevites repent. Everybody obeys God except Jonah. He keeps going the wrong way, but he's the prophet who's speaking for God, and he's always going in the wrong direction. All right, so we won't have time to play with all of them. I just wanted you to see your group work. But let's now use Jonah and talk for a couple minutes about how it goes. So when the, Jonah begins with these couple of verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, you've got to understand a couple of things, right? What's happening in Jonah's world? In Jonah's world, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians at that time are kind of on the rise, and they're beginning to gobble up more and more territory. And as they're gobbling up more territory, they're getting closer and closer to Israel. So Jonah's a smart guy, right? He's into uh, geopolitical affairs. He can look out and he sees Assyria coming his way with these big armies and they're going to take over. Nineveh is the capital of this Assyrian army, the enemy coming that way. God then says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, go to the capital of the enemy and preach against it. There's a part of that command that I'm sure Jonah really liked right? Jonah doesn't like, obviously, he doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't like the Assyrians. He wants God to smash them, right? They're, they're outside God's will. They're going to destroy God's people, etc. Jonah doesn't like them. God's word is against Nineveh. So what's happening in his world? Well, Nineveh, capital of the enemy, they're kind of coming this way. God says, go preach against it. All that's happening in Jonah's world, right? God then says, go preach against it. That's happening in Jonah's world. What does Jonah do? He takes off in the exact opposite direction. So rather than walking to Nineveh, walking to Assyria, right? Walk, he could have done that, you know, in a month or so. Rather than doing that, he gets on a ship headed to Spain, the other end of the Mediterranean, as far away from Nineveh as he can get. Now, you kind of scratch your head at that and say, huh, why would Jonah... If God's word is against Nineveh and the Assyrians, why would Jonah disobey and go in the opposite direction? Well, a lot of reasons, right? And this would be fruit. Maybe he's afraid. When he goes to Nineveh, yeah, chances are they're going to kill him. They'll certainly slander him, probably not treat him well. So maybe it's that. Um, but that's not the reason that we read at the end of the book. So you know the story. Jonah takes off and God sends this big storm, right? The storm obeys. And uh, the sailor, all the pagan sailors, they're all playing, paying, praying to their pagan gods. And somehow they say, Jonah, you're downstairs sleeping and uh, we're up here praying. What are you doing? And which, you know, Jonah's a really good test case to say, you should be careful about using the peace of God as evidence that you're headed in the right direction. Jonah's the only one on the boat that can sleep. He seems to have the peace of God. The rest of the guys are scared to death. He has peace. He's disobeying God in the other direction, but he must have some kind of peace. He can sleep. Well, they wake him up. He comes up and he says, no, you guys are right. I'm running from God and he made the heavens and the earth. And he basically said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Um, Jonah eventually convinces him. They throw him over. 
And they really don't want to do it. Now they're afraid they're going to have a prophet of God's blood on their hands. They don't want to. They throw him over. Immediately, the storm stops. And God sends that big fish taxi to pick up Jonah, take him back to Israel, right? And he spits him up on the beach. And uh, notice, God's word doesn't change. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against it. This time Jonah goes. He goes through the city and the Ninevites repent, right? Even the animals, you know, put sackcloth on. Everybody kind of repents. But then toward the end, uh, in chapter 4, here's what we read, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, this is what he prays, verse 2. He prays to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, God, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why is Jonah ticked off? Because God didn't destroy Nineveh. What really kept Jonah from going to Nineveh? He knew God's word was against them, but he also knew God's heart was for them. Think about how smart Jonah is. If God was going to destroy Nineveh, he wouldn't have to send a preacher. He'd send fire, brimstone. But if he wanted to save Nineveh, he would have to send a preacher. And Jonah's figuring that out, right? Jonah says, wait a minute. If God was going to follow through and just wipe them out, I wouldn't have to go there. Let the bombing start. But if he wants me to go, you know what? He's a gracious and compassionate God, full of loving. I know what he may do. He may not wind up taking him out. So what's in Jonah's heart? Jonah's a racist. He wants Israel and that race to be the only race left. He's a nationalist. He wants God's favor to only be on Israel. He doesn't want other people to experience his favor. He's an elitist, right? He wants for himself and his people all of God's grace, and he wants God's justice to go on those that are not like him. But that's hard stuff, right? Where's his identity? His identity is in being a Jew. What's he loving? Being one of God's people and standing with all these commands and all all these trappings of following God. What's his value? His value is not being like the pagans around them. Now the fruit out of that, he runs from God because he's loving the wrong stuff, right? He's valuing, prioritizing the wrong stuff. And rather than God being the center of his heart, so that Jonah's heart is beating in sync with God's, and he wants everybody that can to come under the umbrella umbrella of grace, that's not what he wants. See how it works? World fruit heart. It'll help you understand what's actually there. Well, if you go back uh, to the other slide where we had the verses, I'll tell you the other ones. Okay, Job. We're not going to examine Job. That's like 42 chapters. We're not going to read it. Um, But it really does work, right? And on the sheet that was turned in, it was really great. What's happening in Job? You actually see a change of stuff in the world. It starts out, Job's life is great. He's got great kids. He has lots of possessions. Life couldn't get any better, right? Um, Job, everything's... All of a sudden, the curtain's pulled back. You know, one of those few places in Scripture where the curtain gets pulled back and we see the drama behind what's on center stage. And we see Satan appearing before God and saying, 
Hey, I was wandering around uh, the earth, and God says, Hey, have you noticed my servant, Job? And what does uh, Satan say? Yeah, I noticed. Who wouldn't serve you with all the stuff you're giving him? Take away some of that stuff, he'll curse you to your face. God says, uh, all right, take it away. But you can't touch him. Notice, Satan, here's a good theological point. Satan is not God's opposite. God has no opposite. Satan is not infinite. Satan's not omnipresent. Satan's not omniscient. None of that stuff. God has no opposite. Satan has to get permission for whatever he does. And God says, okay, take away his stuff. You can't touch him. And Job, so his kids, right, they're, they're killed. The animals are taken. The enemies come. And Job's life now is a mess. Seen in heaven again. Yeah, but, you know, he still has his health. And, okay, you can't kill him, though. Now he has blisters and sores. And, and then, you know, some miserable friends show up. And so all that stuff's happening in his world, right? Friends are there. He loses family. He loses possessions. He lo his wife keeps living. Now, that's a curse for him, right? Just read what she says all the time. Um, I mean, it's his world is a mess now. It goes from great to being terrible. And Job's fruit, yeah, he, he does begin to whine a little bit, but we haven't lived through the mess that he's lived. So you better be careful about accusing somebody else of whining and complaining, um, you know, we need to come alongside and say, you know what? I don't know what it's like to live in that situation. He doesn't do, you know, at the end of the book, he is never condemned for what he says or what he does. So he remains true. He doesn't become an atheist. He doesn't become an agnostic. He still trusts God. He still believes that God's going to work this thing out. He's complaining that God won't give him an audience, but he's not sinning in that other way. Fruit, yeah, he's faithful. He's being honest with God. He's fighting it out in prayer. I mean, some of the sections of Job, a lot of it's poetry, reads like a lot of the Psalms, right? I mean, he's complaining, lots of lament. What's his heart? Well, his heart, it begins to waver a little bit, begins to shake, but he's anchored into who God is and what God's doing. And even though he doesn't understand why, we have the benefit of knowing why. Job didn't read chapters one and two. All that's happening to him without knowing. And you know what makes our lives and trials so difficult? We don't have the book on them. We don't know why when we're going through it. Job didn't know why when he was going through it. And God knows what he's doing. And Job trusts in that. Esther, another good example, right? Lots of fruit in her life. <laughs> you know, in some ways, Esther's a really good example of why we shouldn't make um, biblical characters beside Jesus our heroes, right? You ever realize Esther is kind of like the anti-Daniel? Living in the same circumstance, right? They're kind of in Babylon. Esther completely compromises. Daniel refuses to, you know, refuses to eat the food. He refuses to go. Esther accepts it all. Esther sleeps with the pagan king. Esther says, hey, whatever you want, I'll deliver it to you. Until Mordecai kind of brings her to her senses and say, and what's he basically say? Hey, look, you've got the, and who knows, maybe you're in this position for such a time as this. And make no mistake, if you don't work to be part of God's tool in bringing about the deliverance of his people, make no mistake, God will deliver his people. He'll do it another way. But if you want to be part of doing it, maybe you should go talk to the king. So you see a transition in Esther, right? She goes from a complete compromiser to being much more faithful and actually risking her life taking her life into her hands as she goes before the king 
and presents the case. Yeah, fruit, world, heart, it, it's all there. A woman at the well in John 4. Um, Jesus has a great conversation, and, and that's a good example. We won't use that example later, but when I give you the rest of the windows, you'll see how it goes. That's a really good example of how Jesus almost takes her by the hand and walks her from world to fruit to heart to himself, right? Jesus goes in her mind from being a Jewish man to possibly being a prophet to maybe being the Messiah to being the Messiah, the forgiver of her sins. Jesus walks her through that chart. That's what he does. And Jesus normally does that. Oh, we also have at Peter's denial. We're going to look at the opposite side of Peter's denial in John 21. So if you turn to Acts 5, another really good example. You, you guys did a, did a great job. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Now remember, think world, fruit, heart. So here's what's going on. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Now that word also clues you in Something's happening in Ananias and Sapphira's world and in the world of the church that we have to know something about since that's up here, right? It's affecting them. What was happening? Well, if you read the end of chapter 4, you discover that Acts 5 grows right out of chapter 4. The end of chapter 4 introduces us to a guy named Joseph. But you know him a whole lot better by another name. What's the name you know him by? Barnabas, Barnabas. Now, here's what's going on. At the end of the chapter, we get a clue as to what caused John, Joseph to be called Barnabas. Barnabas must have been a fairly wealthy guy because he owned some island property. Cyprus is an island, and Barnabas owned some island property, right? Like owning an island in the Caribbean or something, I guess. He, he sells it gives the proceeds of the sale to the leaders of the church to meet the needs of the people in the church and extend the ministry of the gospel. That's great, right? The community is so overwhelmed with his generosity and him putting everything into play, they give him a new name. So Joseph from Cyprus becomes Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So Joseph sells property, gives the proceeds to the leaders of the church. That, that money goes to meet the needs of people in the church and to extend the gospel ministry. And they're so overwhelmed with that, Joseph becomes son of encouragement. Ananias and Sapphira in that church, they see that, right? So Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Maybe they're thinking, hey, we want some new names, right? I mean, who wants to be Ananias and Sapphira? I'm going to get a new name. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now notice, it's heart that's filled that now is going to... Notice heart, clearly in Peter's mind... Heart is driving what he's doing. This was put in your heart, and that's what's driving what you're doing. Have you kept some of the money you received for the land? Now, and this is really important, verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied. You have, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So, Ananias and Sapphira are not punished because they kept back some of the money. They're punished because they told the church they're giving it all, and they only gave some of it. Because they were, in their heart, they were more interested in being perceived as generous, in being perceived as holy, in being perceived as sold out like Barnabas, rather than really being sold out by, like Barnabas. Maybe they wanted to keep a little bit in their checking account or in their savings account, tucked away in the stock market. They would, Just in case this whole thing, Christianity thing, doesn't work out, I've got something to fall back on. Just maybe. The, their, their, the sin was not keeping some of it. They would have been certainly in their right to sell the property. Hey, guys, just let you know, I'm giving 50% of the proceeds from the property we sold to the ministry. The church would have been overjoyed. They said they're giving it all, but they didn't give it all because they wanted to be like Barnabas and maybe get a new name. Heart is producing fruit. They lied. That, that, that's fruit stuff. Because in their heart, they wanted, they were loving being perceived as something rather than actually living that something. They weren't being, they wanted to be perceived, even though that wasn't them. See that it works? Heart, fruit, world. All right, so let's uh, add a few more windows here. Uh, don't, don't get upset. There are seven. But you already know almost all of them. Right? If you'll notice, world hasn't changed. We just have two fruits now, and we have two hearts, and we're, at, we're only adding one window. We're adding gospel at the bottom, right? But here's the only difference. So if you can see this or see the sign screen, here's, here's what's going on. We're going to put a negative on the right, negative fruit, which comes from a negative heart, and positive fruit, which comes from a positive heart. Because out of the heart... This tree is producing good or bad fruit, just like Jesus says in Luke, right? And so a bad heart produces bad fruit. A good heart produces bad fruit. I mean, I mean, good heart produces good fruit. That's Jesus. So if we number the windows to make it easier, right? So you have world, window number one. Two is negative fruit. Three is positive fruit. Four is the gospel. Five, positive heart. Six, positive fruit. Back to the world, seven. That's how that cycle works. I mean, I probably played with these windows... Uh, more than 30 years now. Dave Powelson and I did this years and years ago. We started to put this together, working primarily out of Philippians. That's why we started there. And Dave died recently. In fact, we had his funeral here at Calvary Church. So here's what's going on. The world, in Windows 7 tells us this. We not only are recipients of stuff in our world, that's one, we put things into play in the world. We're active participants in the world. We are in other people's worlds. So Barnabas put into play, into the world of that church, the proceeds from the sale. Ananias and Sapphira put into play their deception into that church. So we not only are recipients, right, in the world, we are participants and active in the world. Bad fruit, bad heart, good heart, good fruit. Now here's a, here's a really important point. Fruit... Biblical repentance, right? Biblical repentance is not exchanging fruit. Biblical repentance is not 
trading bad fruit for good fruit. Now hear me out, right? (laughs) You need to stop doing bad stuff, right? You need to stop sinning. But biblical repentance is much deeper than just stop and start. You do need to stop and you do need to start. The problem is, as we've been talking for the past two weeks now, there's a whole support structure to this stuff. And if you're only going to trade fruit, you're never going to deal with the whole support structure, the engine that's driving that stuff. And so what inevitably happens, if you try to only trade bad bad fruit for good fruit, you will wind up trading symptom. And quite frankly, that's what a whole lot of counseling and psychology in our world does. What's it do? It says, hey, there's a whole bunch of socially unacceptable fruit. You need to stop that stuff and adopt positive, more socially acceptable fruit. Now, that's actually a good message. You know, I want my neighbors to get rid of some non-socially acceptable fruit, and it'd be better if they picked up some socially acceptable fruit, but that's not biblical transformation yet. Let me give you an example. Um, Make it ludicrous. Um, suppose, well, not you, suppose, um, suppose someone you know is an axe murderer. That would be bad fruit, all right? And you know what? You need to stop that. You need to tell them tonight, stop. But in eternity's view and in the depths of your heart, if you get that person to trade in axe murdering and become a workaholic, that's much more socially acceptable, right? He'll make more money. He'll probably get promoted. He'll be, he may trash a marriage or so, and his family, kids won't know him. But if he could trade axe murdering for being a workaholic, he will get lots of benefit from that. But at the end of the day, all he's done is trade symptoms. He's traded a non-socially acceptable life apart from God to pick up a, a more socially acceptable life and engine apart from God. God doesn't want us to be workaholics. And God doesn't want us to be, you know, lazy, good for nothings either. Um, you got to balance that, right? And so often we, and sad to say, you know, often in church, uh, often Sunday school curriculum stuff, it's, it's often trading symptoms, right? Well, we, we, we need to do more than trade symptoms. We do need to stop. We do need to start. But we need to address the support structure. Sometimes uh, you, this will help you understand if you've always wondered why I say this. You may have remembered, you may remember I say this sometimes. We need to not primarily address the sins. We need to address the sin under the sins. We need to address the support structure, the engine that's driving that stuff. And so if you trade non-socially acceptable fruit for more socially acceptable fruit, you still have a bad heart that's driving both of them. One just happens to be more socially acceptable. We need a heart transformation, not just a fruit transformation. So it's not this. It's going to be this way, right? So examine what's happening in the world. We need to be holistic. Examine examine what's happening in someone's world, in your world. Do this regularly. What kind of fruit are you producing? And my guess is there's some bad fruit in there, right? Well, bad fruit can only be produced by a bad heart. What are you clinging to, loving, valuing, prioritizing, finding your identity in that's driving some of that bad fruit? That's what needs to be transitioned and transformed. Make sense? All right, now, how how do you do it? We'll use some biblical examples, and then we'll we'll, uh, come back to figure it out. Rich Young Ruler. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 10, uh, 17. I'll keep the windows up, and I'll show you how it works. The Rich Young Ruler appears in all three synoptics, but I like the Mark 10 version probably. 
probably the best. Well, they're all the same. Except Mark 10 has one, has one phrase, one sentence that I really like. And so we'll, we'll read that one. Uh, beginning of verse 17. Now again, think world, fruit, heart, and now think trans- transition. And I'll talk about how Jesus brings the gospel in. Now, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't lose sight of that, right? What's he saying? What do I have to do fruit-wise, right? What do I need to do in window three, in or window three? What do I need to do in two? What do I need to do here to get over here, right? What do I need to do? That, that's window two stuff. What do I need to do in order to have eternal life? Um, now, Jesus is the best teacher ever, right? He doesn't say, you stupid jerk. It doesn't work like that. Here's what he says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And then Jesus rattles off some commands. Well, look, you know the commands. You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Rattles off. That's some of the 10, right? There's some of the big 10 there. I mean, we're not messing with little commandments. These are the big ones. Then um, this guy called the rich young ruler, he says, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. So I must be good, right? All that doing stuff. Here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the sentence I love. Jesus looked at him and loved him. The other, Luke and Matthew, they don't, they don't have that sentence. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face, face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Hmm. Okay, so with the windows, right, with these seven things, let's kind of use it as a transparency over his life. He comes to Jesus with a question, right? And Jesus is in his world. He's heard this teaching. He knows t- Jesus is a good teacher. He's curious. Hey, what's this guy saying? He, he's different than the others, right? I'm going to go. Maybe he knows the secret. Goes and says, Jesus, what do I have to do? Right? Window two. What do I have to do? And uh, Jesus says, why do you call me good? But he doesn't let him answer. Then he says, well, look, you know the commandments. Don't murder on your father and mother. Don't steal. Uh, they're all part of the big ten, right? Now, from your Sunday school days, where do each of those commands fall in the Ten Commandments? Do you know? Like, what numbers are they? They're what? No, they're the last ones. They're all in the second half. Yeah. The first one is, um, uh, have no other gods beside me. Don't make idols. Don't use my name in vain. Honor to Sabbath. All that stuff's up front. Do you think Jesus like just forgot those? Like he jumped right to the end? No. And Jesus also left out the last command, which is coveting. Huh. Let me ask you. We we did this with Achan. Where do you covet? Not in two, but in three. He left that out. Where do you have God as your priority and no gods before him? Oh, that's three. Where do you have no idols? Oh, yeah, in three. Why would Jesus only mention commands in two and not mention any of the commands from three? And there are a bunch of them. He doesn't mention any of those. The guy immediately says, 
Oh, yeah, I'm good. If that's what it takes, I'm, I'm, I've done all of those things since I was young. And Jesus does not say, no, you didn't. And he doesn't rattle off all these examples. when He just doesn't do that. This was a really good guy. I mean, it's incredible. And he probably was a whole lot more moral than we are. Probably a whole lot, Certainly a whole lot more moral than I am. He was producing a lot of good fruit, right? He's producing stuff. But we didn't talk about three yet. But where's Jesus going? Right? We're going to start in one. This is what Jesus always says. You start in one, you look at two, and where's he going? He's going to three. So if you could rewind a little bit, what's Jesus doing? He says, uh, remember you called me good teacher? Yeah, I'm more than a good teacher. I'm the son of God. I'm God. If I am who I say I am, then that brings us right to the first command, which is a heart command. And that brings us to the last command, which is a covet command. And so, in a sense, Jesus is saying, okay, let's examine the first and last commands now. Have no other gods before me. Go sell your stuff. No gods before me. I'm, I'm God. Go. Covet nothing. Go. You see, Jesus is going right after it. He's going here. He's highlighting what the guy is loving, valuing, finding his identity in. And he walks away. And we don't know his name, so we don't know if he ever came back. And indication would probably be he doesn't. Why did he go away? Because he loved his stuff. What did he love God? He coveted his stuff more than he coveted following Jesus. He wanted his treasure in his barns, in his house, in his bank, rather than his treasure in heaven and in the gospel. And so he said no. Now, I, I find it interesting, um, <laughs> thankfully interesting, that's the only place in the Bible where Jesus ever tells anybody to get rid of all your stuff, go sell it, and follow me. He doesn't say it. That's the only time. And notice what Jesus says. He does not say, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and you're in. What does he say? Right, now think hard stuff. What does he say? Go sell your stuff, give it away, and then do what? Follow me. You can't follow me right now because you're following your stuff. So let's get rid of the stuff you're following. Then you're freed up to follow me. So here's what we're doing. In your heart, we're going to trade. We're going to trade your idol, what you've made your God. We're going to get rid of that one. And I'm going to take its place. And the guy says, no. Wow. Isn't that exactly what's going on? I mean, Jesus is, is walking us through right here. And he's hinting at how we do four. Jesus is saying, how do we go three, four, five? Here's how you go three, four, five. You bring, you, just like we said from Isaiah, you compare whatever you're loving, valuing, prioritizing, clinging to, you compare your idol in three to Jesus in four. And you should make that transaction. And that then transforms your heart. This guy doesn't do it. But you see Jesus trying, right? That's, and so um, we, um, we're not going to use this example, but you, you can play it out later. Jesus 
always does. God always does the same thing differently. He's always doing this. But since we're clinging, loving, valuing, finding our identity in different things, it's going to be different because we're clinging to different stuff here. So, for example, I'll give you this example. Abraham was much more wealthy than the rich young ruler. Abraham's possessions put this guy's possessions to shame. God never tells Abraham to sell his stuff and give it away, then come follow me, ever. God never tells Abraham that. He doesn't tell Solomon. Solomon, go sell all your stuff and follow me. He doesn't say, David, go sell all your stuff. He never tells them, right? What does God say to to, uh, Abraham? Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. You, you know why God had to pile up all those um, identifiers? Because I'm sure as God was mentioning those, Abraham was thinking, I'll give Ishmael, I'm, I'm ready, I'm getting. And God says, Abraham, take your son. He had two. Your only son. I don't think so. Isaac, whom you love. That, that's heart language, right? Abraham's clinging to Isaac, right? And Isaac's the son of promise, right? And what does God say? Well, to the rich young ruler, he says, you're clinging, loving, valuing, finding your life in your possessions. Get rid of them so you can follow me. He says to Abraham, Abraham, you're finding your identity and your life in your son Isaac. You need to get rid of him so you can follow me. He always does the same thing. Differently. What does he say to David? He doesn't tell David to sacrifice his son. He doesn't tell him to get rid of his stuff. What's he say? David, uh, you will not be the one to build my temple. You will not build a house for me. I will build a house for you. God uses house two different ways, right? You want to build a house, a dwelling for, you know, Ark of the Covenant. You want to build that for me, a permanent dwelling rather than that. But that's not going to happen. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Abraham, I mean, you read, David's life and heart, his was wrapped up in building a permanent temple so they could get rid of the tabernacle. Imagine taking care of tents and stuff all the time. David's heart is wrapped up in it. God says, uh, you're not doing that, David. Your son will do it. You're not doing it. I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. Now, here's the uh, really loving and really scary thing. Whatever you're loving most, valuing most, finding your priority in the most, building your life on the most, whatever you're doing that in three, anything that you're doing that other than Jesus, he's coming to get it. Like a heat-seeking missile, he's coming to take it away. So if you want, right, here's the upside, if you want your world rocked as a Christian, Build your life on something other than the gospel. He's coming to demolish that foundation. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. He knows all that stuff's coming down, right? Crazy little story I heard a long time ago. I may have given it a sermon. If you've heard it, forgive me. There was a, a little bird. 
And a little bird lived in this little corner of the woods. Uh, but the farmer had this plan. He was expanding. And so he needed to cut down the trees in the little woods uh, so he could be able to pl plant more crops. And, you know, didn't have power tools back then. And so he went out into the, into the little nest of woods. He takes his axe. And so he's just ready to swing at the first tree. And he looks up and, there, and there's a mother bird up there. Hey, he could tell, you know, she's looking kind of big. She's pregnant. Well, he, do, he doesn't want to ruin the mother bird's life. And so he turns the axe over to the blunt end and he whacks on the tree. Whack, whack. And, you know, the bird's up there getting a concussion. I thought, oh, my goodness. And, and, and so the bird flies to the next tree. And the farmer says, oh, that tree's coming down, too. So he goes over with the axe, the blunt, whack, whack. And the, this happens three or four times through a little bit of woods. Eventually, the bird's in the last tree. Farmer whacks on that, and the bird flies to the rocks on the mountain. And the farmer says, now I can take all the trees down. Did the farmer whack on the trees because he hated the bird? No, the farmer whacked on the trees because he loved the bird. Is Jesus going to whack on the stuff we're clinging to in our hearts because he hates us and wants to make our lives miserable? No. It's because he knows all that stuff's coming down. Why build your life and sink your roots in something that's temporal and fleeting and can't satisfy fully anyway? All that stuff's coming down. He whacks on it so we will put our roots more deeply into Jesus, the gospel that doesn't change. And then once the roots go here, it energizes and nourishes a good heart, which produces good fruit, which then we put the good fruit to play in the world. See how that works? Now, this also explains uh, something else. You may have heard the phrase, and some of you are probably thinking, well, I got bad fruit in my life. That must mean I'm screwed up. Eh, a little bit. Uh, me too, right? But here's the point. You've probably heard the phrase, if not, um, you probably heard me say sometimes, the already not yet tension of Scripture. New Testament theologians and you know, expositors for, for decades now have talked about the already not yet tension of the New Testament. Here's the tension. In Christ, right, we are already experiencing eternal life. We're already being nourished by the gospel. We're already bearing good fruit, right? We're already beginning, but we're just tasting the crumbs. We're just beginning. Not yet are we completely rooted in the gospel and producing only good fruit. So every one of us in this room right now, we are a combination of good fruit and bad fruit, every one of us, because some roots in our lives are rooted into the temporal negative stuff of the world and our context. And other roots, if you're a Christian, are rooted into the gospel. And we are already producing some of this, but not yet is it all this. To get all this, you check out. Until then, we live the tension. We live the tension, and the New Testament presents that tension, right? The New Testament presents, you know, Jesus comes and he inaugurates the kingdom, but the kingdom's not fully here yet. So the kingdom's kind of here, but it's not here. And there's this already not yet. We're little microcosms of that already not yet tension you read in the Bible. That, that's your life and my life. That's what it means to live the gospel. And so what, the, what is repentance? Here's repentance. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four. We run around the windows over that. That's the Christian life. And it never ends. Calvin says, human heart is an idle factory. Yeah, just when you think you get the last idol removed, you'll, you'll make two new, two new ones before you get home tonight. And so it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, that, 
that, that's the Christian life, the process of sanctification, biblical repentance, whatever you want to call it, that's how it works. It's not one, two, six. It's not that. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Don't settle for the superficial self-help two to six. Settle for biblical transformation, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And whenever I, Easter's coming. Whenever I, uh, you ever see these, don't, don't ask me where the stuff comes from. You ever, you ever see these people decorate trees with plastic Easter eggs? Like, like what is up with this, right? Um, that is what one, two, six is. You, uh, it, it's Ananias and Sapphira, right? You take little plastic replicas of what you think Christian fruit is, and you tie them on your life, and, and you pretend uh, you don't want to go through the painful process of one, two, three, four, five, six. So what do you do? One, two, six, one, two, six. One. Uh, but plastic Easter eggs on a tree, they didn't grow there, folks. <laughs> the tree can't make that stuff. Um, and this heart can't make that plastic stuff. This heart's going to make something deep, rich, and eternal. See? We spoke on John 21 a, a few weeks ago. I, I, I just want to mention... Um, a few things. I, I'll tell you the story so I won't read it. In John 21, that's the bookend to Peter's denials, which show up in chapter 18. So Jesus shows up. He says, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, seven of the disciples are back fishing. Peter's leading the way. Jesus shows up on the beach, and uh, he asks what every fisherman who's never caught a fish that night, hey, what'd you guys catch? Nothing. Thanks for asking. Jesus says, throw the net on the right side of the boat. Yeah, right. They can't even pull the fish in and so forth. John, who often is portrayed as being a little brighter than Peter, John says, it's the Lord. Peter immediately puts his robe on, dives into the water, swims to shore. So Jesus makes some breakfast. They're sitting there and not to uh, let a good opportunity go by. Jesus obviously knows everything that happened in the world. He knows the fruit that Peter produced, right? Peter denied. And so if you go through the sins that Peter did, Peter lied. He did know Jesus. He said he didn't. Peter was a coward. He was fearing for his life. And Peter cursed Jesus. Um, I know it says there he cursed. I don't think he was cursing himself. You probably heard me say that. I, I mean, you can read it that way. I think that what Jesus is doing, he's cursing Jesus. How do you prove you're not a follower of Jesus? You say, may he be damned. That's probably what Peter says. Ouch. That's what he did. That, that's his fruit. Jesus shows up, makes the fish. Hey, Peter, question for you. So do you love me more than these guys? Um, is that a one, two, or three question? Remember your book? Remember the definitions. Is that a one, two, or three question? That's three. That's love, right? So Jesus jumps right in. Hey, Peter, um, do you love me more than these? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Hmm. Okay, good. Feed my, feed my lambs. A little while later. Hey, Peter, I want to ask you something. Do you love me? My guess is Peter's, he, he's not real bright, but he knows something's going on now that's not going to be good. Um, yeah, I love you. I tend my sheep. Hey, Peter, by the way, do you love me? Now Peter's indignant. 
Lord, you know all things. Peter's probably rehearsing. You know all things, right? You know one and two. You, you know all things. And you know that I love you. Jesus says, uh, feed my sheep, Peter. And Peter is recommissioned. Now, rewind that tape a little bit. And just walk with me how many, and, and I've done this with my kids, right? So this, there's no accusation. How do we often have a conversation with our kids? And how do we think Jesus should have had the conversation with Peter? Here's how we think it should go. Peter, did you tell a lie? Yes, Lord. Peter, is it good to lie? No, Lord. Peter, will you ever lie again? No, Jesus. Good boy, good boy. Peter, were you a coward? Yeah. Is it good to be a coward? No. Are you going to be brave now? Yeah. Good boy. Huh. Notice, Jesus doesn't talk about the fruit at all, does he? Jesus goes after the sin, under the sins. Peter, I know why you lied. I know why you were a coward. And I know why you cursed me. Because you were loving something more than you were loving me at that moment. That, Peter, is what we need to change. So let's take what you were loving, your life, your comfort, life as you knew it, right? The wor- your expectations of how this gospel and kingdom are going to unfold, all of a sudden it's running off track. You want your plan rather than mine. Peter, take that. Let's trade up. Let's trade your expectations, your safety, your comfort. Let's trade up and let me handle that. And by the time you turn from John 21 to the beginning of Acts, one chapter later, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands before the multitude in Jerusalem with all the religious leaders standing there and all the pe- some of the people that executed Jesus. And Peter says, let it be known by all you guys, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved and you must be saved other than Jesus Christ. Hmm. Kind of looks like three, four, five to me. And good fruit follows, right? Good fruit follows. Hmm. One last one. And this is the David one, but I'm not going to do it from the second Samuel passage. I'm going to do it from Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 51. I'll read this and we'll kind of end with it. And maybe you'll, maybe if you put the transparency, maybe you'll see some things in Psalm 51 you didn't see before. So this is, if you read the little um, prefix there, it says, uh, for the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So here's what David prays. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, 
Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are, you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. You, Lord, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in the burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, look, I'm not saying we do need to confess fruit, right? I mean, when you screw up, we need to confess. Look, I, I lied. I'm, I'm not saying you don't do that. But we often confess two and repent it two almost to the exclusion of three. So in Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance, how often does David confess the sin of adultery? How often does he confess the sin of murder? Now, I'm not saying he didn't confess those things, but he, he's confessing the sin under the sins, right? He's confessing what he was loving more than he was loving God. Here's a question I'm, uh, you may never have thought of until you played with the windows. Uh, look at it, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Have you ever thought, ever thought about this before? David says, Lord, restore to me the joy of yours. He had lost it. Big question. When did David lose the joy of his salvation? When do you think? When he got caught? Yeah. When he committed adultery? Hmm. I submit he had to lose it before that. He had to lose the joy of his salvation, and he put the joy of a sexual relationship with his neighbor as a higher joy than the joy of his relationship with God. That's what brought about the sin. He lost the joy of his salvation before he committed adultery and before he committed murder. Otherwise, he couldn't have committed adultery and murder. He lost the joy, the identity, the love, the value of, of, of God and salvation first. That produced all the junk. So the transaction, that idolatry stuff in his heart, that's what drove all of this. And he's praying, Lord, restore this to me. Create in me a pure heart. He doesn't say, God, fix all my behaviors. He says, created me a pure heart. He knows, right? Like the writer of Proverbs, hearts are generating fruit. Real repentance is two, three, four, five, six. That's how it's happening. What's underneath the fruit? And an easy way to, to figure out when you may not be able to ever name it specifically, just know there's a whole support structure to the junk we produce in our lives. Our thoughts are coming from somewhere, and it's not primarily from the world. Our emotions are coming from somewhere, and it's not what happens in our world. Our actions are coming from somewhere, and it's not the world. That stuff's coming from what we're really loving and what we're really valuing and where we're finding our identity and, and what we want more than anything else and what we're prioritizing. That's what, whatever your heart's clinging to, it's going to produce fruit in kind. And so uh, I, I was thinking about that. Um, we're reading, uh, as a staff, we're reading Trellis in the Vine. It's good. And, and the metaphor, right, we need... Trellises are only used uh, for the vines to crawl up. But vines are primary, trellises are secondary. But here's a problem with vines. I'm going to talk about this Sunday because I'm doing I'm the vine branch. Here's a problem with vines. Vines always attach themselves to things that they shouldn't. And always wind up growing in directions that they shouldn't. Hearts. 
will always attach themselves to things that they shouldn't. And hearts that are attached to wrong stuff will always produce weeds and produce junk that's going in the wrong direction all the time. So if we're producing bad fruit and we are, that's a sure sign our hearts are attached to something it shouldn't be. And the real solution isn't just to to say, yeah, stop some stuff and start some stuff. But the real work is going to be, what is your heart clinging to, attached to? What are you loving, valuing, finding your identity and prioritizing? What have you put the highest price tags on in life? And if it's something other than God, something other than the gospel, something other than Jesus, he's coming to get it. He's coming to get it. And it's not going to be pleasant. I mean, he does it out of love. But the reason it's not pleasant is because we're building our lives on that stuff. And so when he's, you know, just like the vine that's wrapped up to something, well, you're trying to pull the vine off of the thing. It, it, you're hurting the vine, right? Well, our hearts are lashed to stuff that are eventually are going to consume us or our temper, we're going to leave it here. And when, when God's pruning it and pulling our hearts away, it hurts. But he does that out of love, not because he wants to wound us or make our lives miserable. Lord, I know it's a cliche that you give us your word and the youngest readers can swim and have a good time and not fear of drowning. And yet the most sophisticated scholars can never plummet steps. Lord, we're just scratching the surface like a little preschoolers dabbling in a, the concepts of your word. And yet, Lord, what we find there um, is true to life. And what we find there syncs up with what we know to be true. Your spirit on the inside convinces us that this is how the process of transformation works, that Jesus is the only means to bring about true transformation, and Jesus is the only goal that will actually allow that to happen. So Lord, as we read your word and as you work within us, would you give us insight, but would you do what, uh, what we can't do? Take the concepts and bring them to life in our hearts. So not just our minds are knowing, but our lives are beating with the gospel. And may we uh, give up the attachments that we have to the things that are temporal and the things that will ultimately destroy us. And help us to cling to Jesus, the one that gives us life, abundant life, eternal life. We pray in his name. Amen.